This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The threat, the security environment is rapidly changing and it, it is incredibly complex. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin. Today, I am just thrilled to welcome my colleague, Carrie Bingen, to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. Carrie is the director of the Aerospace Security Project and a senior fellow in the International Security Program here at CSIS. Among many roles that she's had of, you know, over the course of her career, the private sector, the Capitol Hill. She's served as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, as well as the Policy Director on the House Armed Services Committee and Staff Lead for its Strategic Forces Subcommittee. So you've been in all sorts of different parts of D.C. over the course of your career and just so thrilled to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Thanks, Kathleen. I have been a fan of your podcast from the outset and an avid listener. So it's really great to be here and talk in person or at least talk, talk virtually. Yeah. We'd love to get started with people's origin stories on this podcast. Yours is also a bit unconventional, right? You graduated with a degree in aeronautics and astronautics. How did you find yourself pursuing a STEM education? And how did that transition into the weird world of NETSEC? <laughs> it's a great question. I consider myself a space nerd at heart. And that's why I love being here at CSIS and leading the aerospace team, because I get to come full circle back into space. But as a little kid, I was fascinated by the astronaut program, by deep space. I loved math and science. So my curiosity was peaked at a young age. And from then on forward, I was very driven by careers in the space arena. Like any good budding engineer, when I was in high school, I built myself a spreadsheet and I looked at what are all of the universities where astronauts have graduated from. And it turns out at the top of the list were MIT, the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy. I had horrible eyesight, so I, the academy did not work out for me, but MIT did, and I just uh, am very thankful. I, it was incredibly tough, but it was a great education. But interestingly, in addition to the engineering degree I got there, I got introduced to political science. Was it just a class that you randomly took, or was there a professor that engaged with you? Or It was a series of classes, and I ended up getting a minor in political science focused on national security. And realize that I didn't have the eyesight to become an astronaut, but I could take my technical foundation, my love of space, and marry it with the the national security policy world. And so then from there, I moved down to D.C. and, and got myself ingrained in the national security space community. And how, how do you think that your STEM education you know, helped you in this world of Washington? 
So interestingly, there are similarities between national security policy and strategy making and the engineering world. And it, it comes down to problem solving. How do you take a complex problem, break it down into pieces, analyze it and think through how to achieve something? And that's what you learn in engineering is how do you take a complex, whether it be a space system or architecture, how do you take an aircraft that you're designing, break down all of the different component pieces, propulsion, structures, you know, the dynamic control systems. How do you break all those pieces down, analyze them, and then integrate them back together into something that, that, that functions? And I think policy and strategy is somewhat similar. The challenge with policy and strategy, though, whereas engineering, you're, you're, you're limited by physics, in the policy and strategy world, I think policy is very gray. There are not clear black and white answers, which made it challenging for an engineer to make that pivot from engineering to, to the policy world. So when did you transition onto Capitol Hill? Let's see. I transitioned in 2006. Okay. And this sort of gets us to the decision that you wanted to talk about today, which is how supporting the, the Goldberg Nichols at 30 relook. How did you get onto the House Armed Services Committee and into that role where you were looking as, as policy director on questions like Goldwater Nichols at 30? So I started on the Hill with the House Armed Services Committee Strategic Forces Subcommittee. When I was in the private sector and I was doing my space systems analysis, I actually didn't really know what Congress, what they did. And I remember uh, in one of my jobs, I was at the receiving end of congressional RFIs, requests for information. And I remember reading them thinking, gosh, they're not getting to the heart of the real issues that we're dealing with. And so I started down this path of, of investigating, okay, what, what does Congress do? What are these roles called professional staffers? So you're, you're getting acquainted with the weird world of Capitol Hill and that these, these things called professional staff members exist, which, you know, it, it's so funny, like how pivotal that role is into the functioning of Washington and how little known it is. Well, and I, I think it's really important, and I credit my bosses who hired me, the chairman and the staff director at the time, Bob Simmons, you know, they recognize that in order to inform sound policymaking, we also need people with technical backgrounds. And so I was able to come in, and, and space in particular, it is a complex area. You know, they call it rocket science for a reason. For me, it was an opportunity to challenge myself and take my technical background and apply it to the policy and strategy world. I started with national security space, so the oversight, reviewing programs and budgets, helping members of Congress chart a policy direction on space. But once you get up there and you learn the processes and you work with members and you demonstrate performance, they'll throw more at you. So quickly, they said, ah, you know, rockets and missiles, kind of similar physics. So take on missile defense, take on the nuclear weapons portfolio. You spent some time in the intelligence community, take intelligence. And so I, I worked strategic forces issues for several years, and it was just a fascinating perspective at a really pivotal time. Yeah, <laughs> and also proves the age-old maxim, no good deed goes unpunished. 
right? That's so true. And then I took a little time off, but then came back to the Hill as the policy director. They said, ah, you've done the technical thing. Now let's stretch you further. And I wanted the challenge to be exposed to broader defense policy issues that the Congress and that the Department of Defense were wrestling with. And that's where you and I cross paths. Right. So I was working at the Congressional Research Service. Actually, my first job for CRS was working on what they were calling Goldwater Nichols at 30. And I was pulled in specifically to do that. And I remember getting a call. I was actually in Oslo at the time. And I got a call from a colleague at, uh, at CRS and said, hey, we're looking to hire somebody very quickly to work on this project on defense reform. It's a temporary gig, but you know it could lead to something more permanent down the line. Would you be interested? And I was like, well, sure. <laughs> but of all the things to happen in Oslo, you know, just being introduced to this this project on defense reform and and what it was going to mean for the department and, and relooking at some of the the structures that had been in place since you know 1986. It wasn't on my radar. Yeah, I don't think I realized that that was your first first gig at CRS. Yes. So for the benefit of our listeners, so what this whole project was about was taking a look at how the Pentagon was structured to be able to meet a current and emerging security challenges. Now, we could truly fill a Walmart with the amount of studies and reports on defense reform and how it needs to be done, you know, that have been done over the years. But in 1986, Congress decided because there had been operational shortcomings and Desert One fiasco, Grenada, like the, the, <laughs> the services couldn't literally couldn't talk to each other. They decided to do this major relook at how the department was organized and whether or not the services, the military services could talk to each other. And if basically the department could walk and chew gum at the same time. They concluded no and decided to reform the command and control primarily, like how the department was organized to command its military forces. That's why the combatant commands are so important today in terms of operations, because it designated them as the leads on actual global operations. And then the services specified that they would be doing the training and equipping, like building the capabilities that that the combatant commands would use. So the Goldwater Nichols process in the 80s, it took like, I want to say four years roughly, and eventually culminated in the Goldwater Nichols legislation. And again, the, the Department of Defense was not exactly happy about it. They thought that things were fine, but Congress prevailed. And it's one of the reasons, like historians look back on this and say, one of the reasons that we were able to do the Persian Gulf War so effectively was because of Goldwater Nichols. Fast forward 30 years, as I got introduced to the problem, some people were wondering if, if Goldwater Nichols had gone too far, if there needed to be tweaks, what, ne what needed to be happening. And I just remember that there was a whole lot of, a whole lot of discussion about a whole lot of different problems with how the department worked, but not really a huge amount of consensus, at least amongst 
the expert community on which problems needed to be prioritized and, and addressed. But the department had a different view, right? How did you get exposed to this debate? How, how did it come up? That's a great history that you provided. This was now about 2016. As you mentioned, it was the 30th anniversary of Goldwater Nichols, which really revolutionized and clarified how the Department of Defense was organized, the chain of command through which operational decisions were made and the allocation of forces were made, and then just how operation joint operations were conducted, bringing together each of the services' strengths, but bringing them together um, operationally. So after 30 years, there was discussion on what are our problems and challenges going forward, and are the are the authorities, the organization and structure, and are, are the way we develop strategy, are those all still good or do we need to revisit them? And so I, I always started with the problem and the challenge that was articulated by the Secretary of Defense, by the chairman at the time, and I think generally agreed by Congress was that the threat, the security environment is rapidly changing and it, it is incredibly complex. We're seeing greater transnational threats We are seeing the rise of China, a resurgent Russia. Obviously, at that time, you still had a a large counterterrorism presence. And the challenge with any of those threats is they don't stay confined to one country or to one region or combatant command, which is how we've structured our military planning and operations to date. So there were good questions raised that given the fast-paced nature of the threat and how it's, it crosses different regional combat commands, do we need to relook at how they're structured? Do we need to relook at the authority that the chairman has to move forces quickly across different theaters from CENTCOM to AFRICOM or from Indo-PACOM to NORTHCOM? Do we need to change how we do that process up until then, which had been um, that the Secretary of Defense makes decisions on movement of forces. It's our strategy, the Quadrennial Defense Review, is that process still sound and producing what the department needs? And then it's just that the civilian part of the department, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, is that organization still sound, particularly the office, at that point in time, the Office of the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, ATNL, with how quickly technology was evolving and, and frankly, the challenges with the acquisition community delivering capability, do we need to revisit how we look at acquisition and, and in the context of technological change and, and the need for greater focus on innovation? I remember agility being a word that was bandied about a fair amount, the need to not only be able to quickly move forces across theaters for the reasons that you specified, but also more strategically having capabilities to quickly and effectively address emerging challenges and threats and questions of whether or not the department was suitably structured to be able to kind of have the 
the agility that that Congress and the American public expected. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what starts as a conversation on, you know, nerdy Pentagon organization design kinds of stuff, quickly, you know, when you talk about the role of the chairman and whether they should have the authority to move forces across theaters or to really be a global integrator, it quickly became one of constitutional and civilian military relations importance. Yeah, it did. And what usually happens in the congressional process for how a bill becomes a law and specifically how the National Defense Authorization Act is built every year is the Department of Defense will send over legislative proposals and a proposed budget. Well, the president sends it over every year, and then the Congress unpacks it, they deliberate on it, uh, and then they will mark up their legislation with their policy preferences as well as their positions on programs and budgets that then ultimately uh, becomes law. Specifically on Goldwater Nichols is that that year, this was fiscal year 17, the Department of Defense had proposed a relook at the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Authority. Up until then, the chairman's authority was focused on providing independent military advice to the secretary and the president. The Department of Defense's legislative proposal that year was to enable the secretary of defense to delegate his authority to the chairman to direct the transfer of forces across different theaters and to give him this global integrator role so that he could look holistically across different regions and different functional areas. So I always had the impression, and this may be mistaken, actually, (laughs) that the department's legislative proposals, specifically in this area, were were sort of like a bureaucratic judge wanted to see something in terms of a reform package, and they just kind of cooked up something that would be reasonably acceptable to them. Maybe my impression of that back and forth is wrong. Did DOD drive the train on this? I think as both DOD and Congress were looking at reforms, I think they were both looking, starting with the question of what's the problem? And then coming up with different solutions. And so one of the problems that that was identified in the department, and I think within the joint staff was, back to that earlier discussion, with these transnational threats, with how quickly things can move across theaters, up until then, the Secretary of Defense had that sole authority as the civilian as the civilian leader and and undergirded by the principle of civilian control of the military, it was the Secretary of Defense who would make the decision to move forces across theater. Part of the rationale in the DOD legislative proposal was the SECDEF's a really busy guy. Let's figure out ways that we can take things off of his plate. And this is an area where the chairman could be delegated the authority to move assets and move forces across theater. Right. And the constitutional question is we, well, we have civilian control over the armed forces and the chairman is statutorily was established as you know, this person who provides advice to the president and to the secretary of defense, their best military advice. 
And this is where it's it's fascinating being an engineer who is now out of her comfort zone working these consequential policy and constitutional issues. But it was fascinating. What we ended up doing that summer is we convened the chairman of, of the House Armed Services Committee, Mac Thornberry at the time, convened a hearing in July 2016 to bring thought leaders to the committee and discuss some of these issues. Because at face value, yes, we, we could, the members and, and then the staff supporting them could sympathize with that challenge of, hey, things are going to happen very rapidly in crisis, in conflict, and you need to be able to move forces quickly. You need to be able to have that agility. But is the right solution then to delegate an authority that rests with the civilian leader of the Department of Defense to take that authority and now give it to a uniformed military officer in the chairman. And that was really the consequential issue that members were wrestling with. If we go down this path, does it erode that bedrock principle of civilian control of the military? At what point do you draw a line? Is it okay for the chairman to make decisions regarding the movement of K-9 units or maybe a reserve component or something like that. But for submarines, nuclear-powered submarines, for aircraft carriers, for destroyers, for F-35s, is that a decision that should only rest with the civilian or with the secretary? What's okay, what's not, and where do you draw that line? That was really challenging. And then I think the members of the committee also realized, hey, there's just so many assets and capabilities that the DOD has how do we even craft into law where that line should be? Here are the systems that are yes, here are the systems that are no. And so we held this hearing and actually Dr. Hamry, president and CEO of CSIS, was one of the key witnesses to help them think through these issues, the risks and the implications. Yeah. Well, and remember that he had a really powerful quote at the time, he, you know, the, inserting the chairman into the chain of command, which some might argue giving the chairman the global integrator role does, but he said it's it's not a rheostat. You, it's not something that you can just dial up or down. It's it's something profound for how our military is governed and profound for the that principle of civilian control of the military. And you know, moving forward. Sort of observing the department and be very interested in your views on this too. That really became a point of tension in subsequent years because, at least as I heard it or observed it, the joint staff, the, the military components of the department over time became less and less connected to their civilian components in the preparation of plans and and the, the sort of nitty-gritty nug work of how the Pentagon runs. The civilian and military sides got a bit disconnected. And you know, there's a million different views because it's all bureaucratic politics, whatever. But there, but there's something to that, I think, when you have that narrow wedge of an authority being put into play, how that sort of reverberates across the bureaucracy. In Dr. Hamry's testimony, and this was in July 2016 before House Armed Services Committee, there were two observations that he made that, that continue to stick with me 
to this day. And you mentioned one of them, which is civilian control of the military is not a rheostat. It's, it's a toggle switch. Either you have it or you don't. And if you say yes to the canine unit, the reserve unit, maybe the battalion, it could be a slippery slope. And where, 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 does, where do you then draw the line? So that has stuck with me. The other thing that he observed was that accountability for decisions and for the consequences of going to war, they ultimately rest with the president and with the civilian leadership that has been nominated and, and confirmed with the advice and consent of the Senate. And if the military failed to perform their mission, it was still the civilian leadership and the president that was responsible. So when when decisions are being made on committing forces or moving forces, there's an accountability piece to that. And the accountability at the end of the day rests with the civilian leadership who have to factor in to their decision making, not just the military aspects, but policy, diplomacy, all of these different aspects of government that really are their decisions to make. Now, they can be informed by uh, military best advice, um, but ultimately the accountability that decision-making does rest with them. And that sticks with me to this day. And, and even in subsequent years, as discussions on civil relations in the department have continued, and, and I still keep in the back of my head that at the end of the day, the accountability and that those weighty decisions have to rest with the civilian elected leadership. That's right. I remember that too. And it becomes especially poignant when you think about all of the discussions we've had about the the nonpartisan nature of the, the military and how, you know, whether or how that is being eroded. Yeah. And that's actually, that's, that's a great point. And, and not only that, but then also I, what I recall on this whole Goldwater Nichols reform debate and these issues of, of civilian control of the military there was an incredibly bipartisan approach to understanding this and to, to deliberating on this. Within the House Armed Services Committee, you had Chairman Mac Thornberry, you had Ranking Member Adam Smith, the staffs working with the Senate Armed Services Committee. All of these leaders understood how weighty these issues were and how consequential any decisions that Congress w- would make and then put into law. And I was, I was, I, I look back and I'm very proud of the bipartisan approach that the committees took to this issue. Reflecting on this experience and others, do you feel that being a woman has impacted your approach to these decisions or these issues? And if so, why? But if not, why not? To be honest, that is a really tough question for me to answer. Because I never wanted to be viewed as the women or the the diversity candidate. I worked my butt off to get in the positions that I did. And I liked to believe that I was selected for those positions because of that. And I was truly the best athlete candidate at the time for that position. And that I wanted to be known for my performance, my work ethic, not because I was a woman. The longer I've gotten in my career, the more I recognize that people have to see 
that you can do it. So other women have to see that that women can achieve these positions. You know, obviously they work their butt off to get there, but they they can achieve these consequential positions in national security policy making and defense leadership. Now we're fortunate that we have other women who have really been trailblazers for us, and we could see it in them. For us now, it is, and in my mind, it's now about paying it forward. Things that we can do to help those generations behind us also achieve, because uh, they are they are incredibly talented. You know, and that's a really great point. It's and to me, it's it's not just about you know helping empower in the next generation. It's also about changing our organizational cultures to be less, in my view, inhospitable, right? To factor in things like work-life balance or work-life integration, to make things a little bit more civilized for the folks coming up now. Because there, there is a different way to be effective. There is a different way to lead. There is a different way to be authentic while at the same time achieving your professional goals and just creating a space where the the next generation coming in can feel included and that they they can contribute their whole selves to the mission of national security is is something that I reflect on a lot. Thank you so much, Carrie, for your time today and walking us through this incredibly consequential piece of legislative history and what it's meant for the department and and how you got into the space of national security. I was going to say no pun intended, but that is a pretty good pun right there. Huh? <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Carrie. It's been a delight to have you on. Great. Thanks, Kathleen. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. This Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin.